So I think that's become my primary work is supporting women uh, into those leadership roles and to be able to lead as themselves, not to emulate the leaders who've gone before them. Because I don't think we need more of the same and just switch out when women for men. I think we need to fundamentally um, rethink what we mean by the word leadership and what we expect um, and want from people in leadership roles. Hello and welcome to this episode of Life is for the Living. I'm your host, Rebecca Richman. In this episode, we are going to get to know our fourth guest, Belinda Clemenson, who is the founder of the Women's Leadership Intensive and co-founder of the Leader Coach Intensive, as well as the author of the book, Women, Leadership, and Saving the World. And it is through her coaching of leaders in the corporate setting that Belinda actually found her way to activism. Belinda's drive to activism started as a feeling of not belonging as a child. Yeah, I think I I grew up in a small town in Ontario, Canada, and Um, I felt that I really didn't fit into small town, at least not my small town uh, sort of perspective. Um, My parents are both artists. My dad's an entrepreneur. We did not follow the kind of traditional uh, family (laughs) picture. It was quite different. And so um, when faced with a very sort of traditional, uh, stereotypical kind of the social system, I rebelled against that from the beginning. It was a really um, uncomfortable fit for me to be put into traditional female types of roles. I wasn't interested in that. A lot of peers from from high school, for example, uh, you know, got married right out of high school and and went into, you know, some of those more traditional, I guess, uh, roles, and that just didn't feel like a fit for me. So I, it it started me down the road of just exploring feminism. Um, I started doing writing. Every every time I got into a new job, I did a lot of outdoor leadership work. And so I would start to look at the gender dynamic and I would start to do mini research projects and write about it and eventually did a, a lot of work on it during a master's degree in um, adult education and workplace learning and change. And so yeah, just taking all of those experiences and saying, okay, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this inequity, I'm seeing this, um, these stereotypical roles that aren't a good fit for a lot of us. I had been doing leadership development work for a long time. And maybe eight years ago, I started to have a real crisis of consciousness about the work that I was doing. And feeling like I was helping leaders lead things that I did not really believe in. Uh, lead systems and organizations in ways that I didn't necessarily think were um, helpful in the bigger picture, or maybe helpful to some people, but not all. There's a lot of inequity there that I couldn't ignore. And um, I, what I really noticed a lot was how women in those rooms were uh, treated differently than men. And there were fewer of them. Their voices were heard in a very different way if they were heard at all. 
the roles were different. And so that sort of crisis, I guess, in the work that I was doing pushed me back to my feminist roots. And I started doing a bit of a taking stock of where are we now in terms of women in leadership and gender equity in leadership. And what I realized was, you know, this was me in my late forties kind of doing this scan. And I realized that, yeah, we had made progress since I was in my twenties and in my teens and, and active in a different way, you know, an activist in a different way, but there's still so much road to travel and our numbers are not getting that much better and certainly not fast enough. And so I think that really pushed me into knowing that I needed to focus my work and my activism around women in leadership and gender equity. So um, I think when I had that wake up call and realization that I needed to switch my leadership development practice to focus on women in leadership and gender equity in leadership, I basically dismantled my old uh, practice and, and built a new one called the Women's Leadership Intensive. And so our mission is to inspire, empower, support, and equip women to lead the change the world needs. And um, we do that by providing leadership development that is by women for women, which is remarkably rare when you do the scan and you see what kinds of uh, leadership development is out there and who it's actually built for. And most of it's really based on the male experience. And even when they have women's programs, they just take the same program and they do a women's cohort. So they don't necessarily reimagine what do we need to think about differently when it comes to women in leadership, um, the strengths that we bring, the different experiences that we have on our leadership journeys, um, what matters to us, what motivates us, uh, the other demands that are on us in our lives, you know, so it's a very different picture. So I think that's become my primary work is supporting women uh, into those leadership roles and to be able to lead as themselves, not to emulate the leaders who've gone before them. Because I don't think we need more of the same and just switch out women for men. I think we need to fundamentally um, rethink what we mean by the word leadership and what we expect um, and want from people in leadership roles. Can you tell me a little bit like what, what would that new vision of leadership look like? Yeah. Well, I think we've, you know, we've, we've gone down a road and where, and this is, I'm going to use the Simon Sinek language here, which is we've over-indexed on individualism and we've over-indexed on profit as being the most important um, driver of organizations and corporations. And probably on a lot of other factors as well. And I think the rebalancing comes in to be able to say, you know, if in the past leaders were expected to deliver profit or deliver shareholder return, leaders today, I think, have way more of a 360 degree stakeholder um, obligation. Meaning, yeah, of course, you know, for an organization to stay alive, they need to be profitable and that's fair and fine. But they also serve communities. They consume resources and dispose of resources, which means they have a sustainability obligation. They have employees that, um, you know, they have responsibility to in terms of not just 
them doing the job and getting paid to do the job, but also as members of their community, as members of their organization, right? So when we when we think about it a little differently, or even policy, right? How does policy uh, come into play when it comes to that um, relationship between politics and corporations? I mean, particularly in the U.S., that is a huge driver of policy decision, right? Or influencer at the very least of policy decision. So when we look at organizations today and what do we need from leaders, we need them to have more of a a 360 or circular, even spherical kind of view of their world, right? Whereas in the past, linear was fine. We've also got all kinds of uh, changes happening in the workforce. So, you know, women are sitting somewhere around 48% of the workforce today. That was not the case a few decades ago. We've got younger generations, millennials and Zeds coming in at scale now, and they don't want the same things and they don't want to be led in a directive, top-down, command and control kind of a way, and they won't stay. I don't think you can start to do equity work. I mean, well, for me anyway, when I, when I entered into starting to do equity work in this last decade or so, I came at it really saying, okay, I'm going to look at women, right? So that's what I know. And it didn't take long for me to realize that you cannot do equity work and not look at intersectionality. It's impossible because I can't say women and say that's a monolith. We are all having very different experiences here. And you can look at any sort of metric. So for example, if we look at the gender pay gap, right? We know that the aggregate pay gap in the US, for example, is 82 cents on the dollar. So that's what women make as opposed to what their male counterparts make for the same job, for the same work. But if you break that 82 cents down, you can see that Asian and white women are at the top of the scale there. And as we move down, Black women, Indigenous women, and Latina women are at the the other end of the scale in terms of the pay gap, right? So when we say gender pay gap at 82 cents, some people might be sitting more like 85 and some are sitting more like 75. That's a huge difference. And that's just one axis, right? That's just one measurement. Um, And that doesn't even get into um, the additional um, interpersonal labor that comes with additional marginalized identities. So I don't think it's possible to look at women in leadership without looking at intersectionality And where we're headed now is that a lot of the progress that we're making in in women in leadership is for white women who are already, you know, upper middle to upper class. So are we making progress? Yes, we are. But is it uh, actually representative progress? Not so much. Not when we start to, again, pull apart some of those intersecting identities and say, well, do we then want instead of having white men run everything, do we then want to have white men and white women running everything? Well, no, that's still not going to um, be just, it's not going to be equitable, and it's also not going to give us the diversity of perspectives that I think we need in order to solve the kinds of complex challenges that we face in our organizations, but certainly in our communities and society. So, I mean, you, you you talked a little bit about, you know, the difference of leadership styles between women and men. Do you like, do you also think that that leadership training would need to be tailored more for minorities? So like, um, 
the thing that's coming to mind for me is the idea of the the angry black woman. Mm-hmm. So like that's another of those restraints where like you you know someone has to like walk an, yet another tightrope of like you need to be assertive but you can't be that's angry. Right. And I think you know the our approach so far and I I can't say that this is right wrong or otherwise. Our approach so far is that we are trying to convene a diverse group of women in our leadership um, programs so that they can learn that from each other as well. Because it's not for me to teach it, right? Right. I I can talk about the concepts and we bring in um, speakers and guest faculty to come and uh, teach a lot of different pieces of the program because I, I certainly shouldn't be the one to do it in a lot of cases, right? So we'll bring in um, for example, for doing our work on land acknowledgement and reconciliation, we have um, an Indigenous woman who comes and helps us do that work and teaches us, right? We have an expert on DEI who's a Black woman who comes in and teaches that. But in terms of the makeup of the group, I think it's really useful and helpful to have the diversity there in the room when we're having conversations. Because again, if it's only white women in the room talking about leadership, we're going to miss a huge uh, opportunity and and we're going to have all kinds of blind spots that we don't, that we don't deal with. And then we'll go and perpetuate those blind spots, whether it's conscious or unconscious back in the leader, in the leadership roles when we're back at work. What are, what are the things that you do to kind of like try to bridge that gap in experience and worldview? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll do a couple of things. I mean, one is I'll often say there's, you know, we're always we're always working with both the individual and personal experience, which is what a lot of people are talking about when they're talking about struggling with the idea of equality. And we're also got our our collective or or sort of more um, contextual experience. Right? Both of those are happening at the same time. And so when somebody is using their personal experience to tell me why, you know, equality is not uh, not a good idea. It's, I'll, I will sometimes say your personal experience is absolutely valid. And let's talk a little bit about what other people are experiencing over here in this bigger social context piece. So sometimes that works, right? Sometimes to say like, okay, like there is that experience that you're describing, but there's this, all this other experience that people are having over here. And let me tell you a little bit about what that is based on what I've done, what the research is, right. That I've, that I've been looking at. Sometimes that's helpful. Um, Sometimes just sharing some data points because a lot of it's based on misinformation, right? Like you can look at the world and say, oh, well, we're done with gender equality. There's women everywhere in the workplace. But then when you get into the actual numbers, right, of who gets promoted and how many are CEOs and the fact that women only hold 8.5% of the highest paid positions in Canada, you know, then you then you look at it and go, okay, well, that is, that is, that when we say 8.5 or we say like 10% of CEOs, we can look at those numbers and go, well, that doesn't add up with population demographics. We're 50-50. So why is the number so skewed? Let's talk about that. Or sometimes, you know, a question I get a lot, and I think this is going to be happening more and more and more, is um, people will ask me, aren't you worried that young men, young white men in particular, like your son, um, are going to be discriminated against in in uh, applying for jobs because they'll want to hire women. They'll want to hire 
um, racialized and indigenous people instead, because they need to make their quotas, they need to make their numbers, they need to look good. Right? Aren't you worried that this these boys will get discriminated? These boys and young men will get discriminated against. And my answer to that is a there is no evidence that that is currently happening. The numbers do not back up that story at all. There is no evidence that it's happening anytime soon because the trends and the progress is so slow towards these these balancing outs that chances are your kids and your grandkids are not going to see this anytime soon. And on the flip side of that, why are we so outraged by the potential hypothetical discrimination against young white men, but we are not equally outraged by the actual discrimination against our girls, our women, people of color, indigenous people? Like, why does that matter more to you than this? That's the core of the problem. Yeah, it's the whole thing with the, not to get super dark here, but like the, you know, the idea of like, why should men be punished for a moment of fun? Because they had so much potential. And, you know, who cares what the the woman's potential, what what we lose in women's potential when they are facing harassment and when they're facing violence? Yeah. Like, what are we losing there? But we don't, we don't value that. What it comes down to is it's a fundamental willingness to sacrifice some groups of human beings and not others. It's a big problem. And I think these things are complex too, because, you know, when we, when we get pushback, for example, again, like from men saying like, I'm not privileged or white men saying I'm not privileged. Right. And, and some of the thing is like, we're, 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 we've got multiple axes of intersection all happening here together, which is that could be on an economic scale which we know our economic scale is way out of whack, right? We've got the 0.1%, then the 1%, then the 10%. Like, you know, we've got this huge um, economic inequity, economic disparity happening. So there are a lot of people who are feeling disadvantaged, right? And dis- and discriminated against. And, and true, when we look at how the wealth and power in the world is distributed, we can say that white men hold those positions of power, but... That's a, that's a small slice. Like, why do so few hold so much? Links to Belinda's social media, web pages for her organization, and for her book will all be included in this episode's descriptions. Join us next week when we get to know our final guest, Susie, and her many different lives and many different causes. Thanks for listening. And if you have any suggestions about future guests, topics, or have any questions for us, you can reach us at, at lifeisfortheL on Twitter and Instagram, or email us at lifeisfortheLivingPodcast at gmail.com. The Life is for the Living Podcast is written by me, Rebecca Richman, and produced by Marco Burlow.